in the past there's been an expectation that kids will come from kindy ready to learn in primary and then we'll do a little bit to them then they'll move out ready to go to intermediate and then they'll ready to go to high school didn't work like that that there is lots of kids that are not ready to learn so we have to look at how we adapt our teaching so that they can become learners and they can become confident learners You're listening to the Augmented Learning Podcast and Video Log. Stories from inspiring educators, leaders and influencers who are challenging the status quo. Today's episode is sponsored by My Study Series, an online learning platform supporting Kiwi teachers and students through NCEA. With the ability to track student progress and quiz results, data provided by My Study Series ensures teachers remain informed of how well their students are performing. Check it out now at mystudyseries.co.nz. Kia ora everyone and welcome to episode 50 of the Augmented Learning Podcast and Video Log where you're able to grow, learn and develop by accessing high quality PLD when you need it most. I'm your host Carl Kondaloff and today I have a very special guest for you. First of all, thank you for the support and feedback across the last 50 episodes. I haven't been as consistent as I hoped since the podcast launch and at times I've even considered pulling things right back but I'm glad I persevered and I'm very grateful to have hit this 50 episode milestone. We've got a big announcement in the coming weeks around some changes and additions to the podcast, which I think is going to make the podcast significantly better and help bring you even more stories of amazing educators, leaders and influencers. But it's time to introduce today's guest. If you consume my content on a regular basis, you'll know that I talk about this person a lot and I hold them in very high regard. She's had a massive influence on my career and and probably more so than I think she actually realizes. One thing each and every one of us share is the fact that we have leaders in our lives. Regardless of where you find yourself or what stage of life you're at, leaders will play a big part in shaping your day-to-day. Some of us even have the privilege of leading others, and if you're one of those lucky people, I have no doubt that your leadership is shaped in some part by a leader who has had a really positive impact on you. Prue Kelly is that leader for me. She was my very first principal as a teacher, and I quickly established she was someone I could always go to for support. She took a risk on me on more than one occasion and despite the mistakes I made or difficulties I found myself in, knew she would always go into bat for me. Leadership to me is making those people around you better. Prue cared immensely about her staff and she fostered a rich learning environment that I'm still yet to see replicated elsewhere. We touch on this towards the end of the podcast but her annual handwritten Christmas letters to every single staff member showed her strong leadership and passion for growing better people. Welcome to the podcast. Before we get started, can you tell us a little bit about your teaching background and your experience? And I I think you've got quite a bit of experience and maybe um, a few tidbits about your current role in education. Okay. Well, I began teaching a long time ago now, uh, 1964 in fact, at Kauraua North School as a standard two teacher with a class of 32 and I can still remember all their names when I look at the class photo. It was a great year but um, and it began 10 years of teaching in primary schools. Four of those years I taught in my father's school and that was a grand experience but it was also like um, being one of the bosses of the school because we talked about school at home a lot and always knew what he was going to do and sort of had a part and put my pennies with him. Um, went and taught in Australia for four years, two years in Sydney and two years in the Northern Territory. And I learned a very valuable lesson there that I didn't learn when I was at secondary school. And that was that if I wanted to progress in education, I needed a formal degree in education. 
or a subject. And because I could see that the people that were in the leadership positions were had a degree, and I didn't at that stage because when I trained, it was two-year training, they virtually came around to schools and grabbed you in butterfly nets because they knew the baby boomers were coming and they were going to need a lot of teachers. And um, and you got a trained teacher certificate, which really wasn't worth much at all, except it did get you a job. Um, came back from teaching, from Australia, I mean, sorry, to have our third child. And during that time, I, while I was at home looking after him, I started studying through Massey University and did a degree in um, geography. It was my main subject, geography and history. And um, got to level three, and in those days you couldn't complete a degree extramurally. You had to go into the university, so we explored Palmerston North, and my husband said, I can't live here. And, um, <laughs> sorry, Palmerston North. And um, so we ended up going to Auckland and we bought a dairy. But that's, that's um, a bit irrelevant. But I had a year where I did level three and helped in the dairy and anyway, finished, finished my degree. And I applied for some jobs in the primary schools around the place and got a job at Takapuna Intermediate. And it was due to start the following term, but um, the DP of the local high school came in to buy his kids Whitaker's peanuts every Saturday night. And he said to me, I hear you finished your degree. And I said, yes. He said, well, you should come down and talk to the boss. There's a geography job going down there. I hadn't thought about teaching secondary schools until then. And I discovered they paid $6,000 more a year. <laughs> anyway, I went down there and got the job and happily fitted into secondary schools. And was DP at that school seven years later and then spent the rest of another eight years there. And then moved to Wellington High School. So I've actually only taught in two secondary schools for 15 years. Years in one and 17 years in the other. And that's it, really. My current role, since I retired, I've had great jobs. My first job was with NZQA for nine months, and just finding people to write resources basically was all I had to do. And I did it from home and, and really enjoyed meeting a wide range of people and people in, in other industries who were going to write the resources. During that period, I got asked if I'd like to go to Oman and help with a contract to review the Omani education system. Of course, I said yes, not, not thinking we'd get the contract, but we did. So the next eight months was in Oman, and that was a fantastic experience, which taught me a lot about uh, Muslims, Arabs, their way of life, their beliefs, and it's not all what you read in the paper. Confronting? Um, confronting because as a team, we Kiwis set out to make sure we didn't, we were culturally responsive, I suppose we call it now. We didn't put it in those terms. But for instance, I always, when I went to work, I always wore long skirts and um, shirt sleeves, whereas other people, from other countries would turn up with short skirts and singlet tops, never shook hands with people and didn't, you know, just obeyed the cultural norms and respected their way of life and very quickly became friends with the young Arabs that we were working with. So it was, it was common sense really, like most things. And after that, I, uh, I spent a period as um, acting principal at Bishop Yard and I learnt so much there that I wish I had learnt before I started teaching, particularly about the impact of Pacific Island culture, the church, if people were particularly, um, you know, were active churchgoers, and how that affected K 
kids learning and their willingness and want to question what was going on. You know, I found the kids very compliant and they, did, they, didn't, they didn't query things. They did as they were told. And it was much more so than I'd ever experienced before. What do you think that was? I think it was the, the Catholicism a bit. And I think it was um, they were expected to go to school and be good kids, not, not upset the teacher. And if you question something the teacher told you, it might upset. Not all the boys were like that, of course, mm -hmm. but certainly the girls were. I taught a year 10 science class because we're short of teachers. I'm not really a science teacher, but a teacher's a teacher's a teacher. <laughs> and um, so, and I, and I did it through you know, learning as inquiry rather than telling them what to do because I wanted them to start asking questions. And my goal was to get them all asking questions by the end of the term, end of the year, even if they didn't learn any science. And the interesting thing was they all chose science to go on to the year That's 11, good. and that was a first. So they were learning. Um, and, then, and then I got this particular job that I still hold now, and that is I lead the team of people who assess the Kahuiako applicants. It's, it's the new appointments national panel. And as some people will know, that there's a movement going on in New Zealand that is trying to get schools to work together to share good practice. And the ultimate goal is to um, improve teacher practice so that it improves student learning and it's done from within the group of schools not imposed upon them so we identify a leader for each kaoviaka or the kaoviaka identifies the leader we run a ruler i suppose you'd say over that leader to make sure they meet the national eligibility criteria and that was an agreement that was made through with um NZDI, PPTA, STAR, Teachers Council, MOE, because they wanted to make sure that quality people got these jobs, that it wasn't just given to someone who needed a boost. And we do the same thing for the across-school teacher roles. So there's, there's 12 of us. I'm the chair of the group. We, When I got the job, there was only me, and I was given the book of rules and said, now create the process so it's been a an interesting process challenging process at times um, but i think we've got a uh, a sound process with a with a clear understanding of what it means to meet the criteria and what it means not to meet the criteria there's some good brains on the panel education brains that it's active active professional development people retired principals like myself. Um, yeah, those are the two broad groups of people and, and we come together and we really, I think, share a lot of uh, experience that, that has permitted us to, to do the job without upsetting everybody because nobody likes to be told who they should appoint and who they shouldn't. And that's not our job. Our job is to see if people meet the criteria. Of course, if they don't meet the criteria, they can't be appointed. But um, that's that's the role that we do. And I I know your your role is around those those appointments, and and you described it really well. The purpose of the kahuaku is to have schools working closer together and and connecting better, and you know sharing resources and and all of that, and people and and everybody's expertise. But it seems it gets a really bad rep and people are just against these communities of learning. Well, it had an unfortunate start because it was pushed in quickly by the previous government. That, and it was heckier and she had a vision and 
I fully, I fully appreciate what she was trying to do and think it was a, a I, I think the whole thing is great. And my big sadness when I heard about it was that I wasn't still principal at Wellington High School. So I couldn't get a kahuyako going because ideally I would have loved to do that. So it's, it's great to be involved in it, even as an outsider. Um, and But it was pushed through very quickly and the NZEI thought, I hope I'm not relying the NZEI, the NZEI wanted to have the money but not the conditions. They wanted to have the money and do it their way. So they resisted joining that, the Kahukakos for a long time. Um, and the PPTA could see the goodness. I don't understand why anyone wouldn't be drawn to it the whole just without anything else because for the first time ever, teachers were going to be paid to reflect on their practice. They were going to have their peers coming and having the time to look at what they do and give them helpful hints and, and be paid for it. And each school was going to get not a heck of a lot of hours but about 50 hours for um, PD and observations and things like that. And we've never had that before. So um, I believe the people that are giving it bad rap are the people who aren't making it work. Yeah, that makes sense. Because if you go to particularly places like Alexandra, Wakatibu, Kaikoui, they've got stuck in and they are all working together and they know their kids and their town kids are our kids. They're not that school's kids and that school's kids. And it's what we can do. Are we ready for these kids? What can we do to teach these kids? Not what is the school, what is that kid going to do when it gets to our school? It's going to do, how can we get the best for these kids? And they're sharing practice at Kaikoui. They have a system, they all know each other's timetable. And if they're having a problem getting the kids to learn some particular aspect of something, They'll look at the time, who's doing this? Oh, we'll go and see Mary Lou. She's, she's pretty good and she's teaching such and such. They don't have to ask permission. They just bowl into each other's classrooms. That's across the four or five schools in the Kahuyako. Now, that's unheard of. But that's going to be good for the kids of Kaikoi. 100%. And the teachers. Yep. So I think that, you know, we're on a, on a we're into a long journey and there's five years of it gone, so we've only just begun. My, my real hope is that the movement, if you like, of collaboration and cooperation and working together and sharing good practice is not destroyed by any uh, change in policy by this government. And the way you describe it then, I don't think anyone would intentionally come in and destroy no, that. And, but they probably don't understand what's happening now because that all they hear are the loud naysayers. It's got less though. I think so, I, yeah. I believe. Yeah. And you're, when you were describing some of your your entry into teaching, you talked about your, your father. So he was a principal? He was a peripatetic primary school principal. How... How much do you think he influenced you, whether explicitly or, or um, you know, subconsciously, to head down that leadership path? Well, little girl. Because you said you were, you felt you were influencing. You had some influence. So you'd talk over the kitchen table or something, and you, you felt you yeah, could. for sure. We were, we always knew what was happening at school, even from when we were little kids, because Dad was the principal, Mum was off of the. Other, only other teacher so little brothers and sisters were in the house at home across the field while those two were out teaching and we were running across the paddock to make sure they're all right uh, <laughs> um yes and and i did go teaching to please my father you know because i thought dad would be happy if there was one teacher my my elder brother left school and went to the freezing works which was did not please my father. My twin sister, who was older than me, left school and went nursing. And I thought, if he doesn't get me as a teacher, there'll be nobody. <laughs> and, but subsequently, 
one of my younger sisters has me, the Kappa teacher. Um, plus, you know, I was basically enjoyed school. And it was like not leaving school. It was an extension of high school. We went to Melville High School, it was then, but it was Melville Teachers College. We went to lessons, we played sport. It was just like school. Sport, sport was pretty big for you, eh? Yes, it was. I, Softball, if I recall. I was no great sports person, but I enjoyed sports. I enjoyed the term, the, the team aspect of sports. But I enjoyed um, coaching it more. I enjoyed wrangling the kids and getting them the right place at the right time with the right skills. The biggest, most exciting thing that ever happened to me was our softball team winning the, winning the national champs down here. And you were coach. I was coach, yeah. And it was it was a boys' team, and they were marvellous. I know, didn't mean me. That was when club softball was strong. Yeah. And and they were just great. And we beat TLT in the final. Well, it was it was it was fantastic. Each team each team had a whole range of supporters, and I was. It's like a circus with all the children and yelling. But it was it was magnificent. I played squash. That's an individual game. I played quite good squash. But got to the A grade but didn't stay there long. I can't stand squash. I'm useless at it. I loved it. I years loved it. and years I tried to beat Karen Goodall, but it never happened. See, I loved it until I became a DP and I didn't have the time to practice. And I needed the practice. I needed to go down there and bash the by myself, bash the ball up and down the wall, just to keep it all together and keep it going and keep control of the ball to the standard that I wanted to. And when I couldn't practice enough, and people started to beat me who I didn't want to beat me, I gave up. Just what? Just on on that, is there such a thing as a deputy principal that has work life balance? Because I, I, I asked this because you mentioned then that you're you've got too busy as a DP and then I see um, you know, I see roles being advertised around New Zealand, you know, offering nine management units and that's a hell of a lot of money. And I feel like when you're you're offering that sort of salary, you're essentially saying your life is going to yeah. become a school. Um I've known a couple of DPs that have their life balance in order, but at other DPs and other people's expense, mm. really. Um, Is I'm, it wrong? Is it? No. I, I often reflect on the fact that now, in my job, I can keep my work-life balance because there's not all the demands from the community, there's not all the demands from the building, there's not all the demands from the staff, there's not the demands from the parents. And I can come home and I can shut my computer and not have to open it. I, I think that had I, been, had I been able to get my work life in balance, then I might still be principal at Wellington High School. <laughs> but I couldn't. Mm. And so I, it was a matter of sanity, really. And you, you applied to be principal at high nine times, right? Not at high, but for a, a principal's job. For a principal's job, job. Yeah. right. We lived in Auckland, and our children were all at either moving out of university, moving through university, or just beginning university. So we, we, we agree we were stuck there, really. And... You know, mid-80s to mid-90s, young men were the flavour of the month. In fact, when I when I first um, came back from Australia, I went to the local high school where I was at the time and said, would you be interested in a relief teacher who primary trained, plenty of experience, can do you know, job, geography, social studies are my key interesting things, but I can teach any set of kids, keep them in order if it's a relief teacher. And um, he looked at me and he said, young men are the future of New Zealand education, not returning women. 
So I, you know, got all witty and stood up and said, well, I won't waste my time then and walked out. Um, but there was that attitude that young men were superior to not old women, but older women. I was in my 40s who didn't have a conventional career path, whereas if you've been to Auckland University and then gone to grammar or somewhere to teach or one of the established top schools around the place, then you're vastly material, superior material to some woman who was just got a late degree and done a bit of primary teaching, then moved to secondary. So, yeah, but I persevered. Why? Well, for two reasons. Well, it's probably a hundred reasons, but basically two. One, I wanted Dad to see me as a principal. That was silly, wasn't it? But anyway, but also the principal at the school I was at died. But he was a wonderful man. He, he appointed me to the beginning, so of course I thought he was a wonderful man. But he was also great, and, the, and, and his greatness was because he would always back you. If you went to him and said, you know, can I do this? I'll give you an example. It's not a very good example because it's not an educational example, really. But it's, uh, it's I hadn't been there very long, and they, they used to have school dances, and it was the, the it was a co-ed school, but it was the community joy to have dances. All the kids in the school were allowed to go. And they had a very bad one, and they decided to cancel all future dances. There'd never, there'd never be another dance. And um, I was teaching senior kids geography and had, stage, uh, had the, they were enlightened. They gave the young teachers with the recent degrees the top classes, didn't give it to the old fogies. Um, and, and the kids had really got stuck in about the injustice of this, you see. So I said, okay, well, help us make a system, help me devise a system that will ensure we have a good, safe dance. Because, of course, they used to try and bring booze and all that sort of thing. So anyway, we, that was our geography problem for the next week or so. And anyway, I went, to the, I went to the boss and I said, you know, would you let me run a dance if I can get enough staff to support it? Um, anyway, he let me and we had a dance and we had great dances every term after that for the whole time I was there. And it was just, you could do things because you had confidence that he'd have your back if it did go wrong and if, if he'd convinced him and it did go wrong and he would back you. He wouldn't let you just hang you out to dry. And I wanted to be that person. I wanted to help other people grow and grow with them, if you like. And um, I think that's what sort of shaped my belief in what a principal should and could do. And I'm stubborn. <laughs> but you see, the description of that principal there would be very similar to, say, a, I think, a teacher that has taught underneath your leadership would say about you. So, in, in I'd way, hope so. I think so. I remember going into your office and asking for time off for something that I was passionate about, and you were just like, "Yeah." Or I wanted to bring in a bunch of video game consoles with the kids, and you were like, "Yep." And you know, I was gaming trips around the world. You gave me leave with pay and things like that because it was it was something that I was passionate about and it's something that was going to influence my teaching and our students in a positive way. And you could see that. You didn't go, well, that's video games. That's stupid. What, yeah. what good is that? But you could see that. Yeah. And you had faith in your stuff. Yeah. What, you know, you talked a little, about, a, a little bit about how it was hard for females. If, if you think back to when you started teaching to now, what do you think has been the biggest change? For females or for... In general. Well, I, th I think the singing about that the other day, as I was listening to someone talk in an interview, I think that the change that is going on now, that certainly wasn't there in the beginning, is that schools are realising, or teachers are realising, that they have a responsibility to get ready and be ready to teach the kids according to what they bring to the class. 
the kids shouldn't come ready to learn necessarily. It's a nice idea and it's a great concept, but in the past there's been an expectation that kids will come from kindy ready to learn in primary and then we'll do a little bit to them, then they'll move out ready to go to intermediate and then they'll ready to go to high school. Didn't work like that. That there is lots of kids that are not ready to learn. So we have to look at how we adapt our teaching so that they can become learners and they can become confident learners. And I, I think that's the change. That's what I see happening. And that's what I see happening in all these kahuiakos. I mean, they're starting to... Schools across the pathway are starting to talk to each other when they never used to. You know, what do you expect your kids to leave with? When What do you want them to have? Let's map it out so we know. And there's, they're getting curriculum maps across the, the pathway. It's not about the kids going from my school to your school to your school and forget that school over there. It's about everybody having an understanding of what we need and what the kids, we want the kids to do so that they pass out striding confidently into their future, which is what I used to want for Wellington High School kids. I mean, it's, a, it's definitely, I see what you're saying there, and that's, I see that as well. But then we still have, well, you're a year nine, so you learn with the year nines, and we're doing PE, and this is the knowledge we have for you, and you're doing English, and this is the knowledge you need to know, and we still put all these walls around yes, our kids. We do, but we're having a diverse bunch in that year nine, and we are catering for the diverse bunch in a way we didn't used to. The response used to be, you don't know your tables, bang, bang, bang. Now it's, you don't know your tables. How can we help you? What do I, what do, I have to do? How, where's my resources? So that I can help you learn your tables so you can move on with the rest of the kids. That's how I see it. And I hope it's working for my grandson. Your grandson's at Miramar North? Mm. Yeah. When you were a principal or leader, doesn't have to be when you're a principal. What, what do you think, what do you feel were the most important decisions you made? Well, one really important decision I made was as a DP when they appointed a principal whom I considered and many of the staff considered, was a culturally inappropriate appointment and didn't really understand the school, didn't have a depth of understanding of what it was to be a principal. And I was DP and I made the conscious decision that I would be loyal to this guy. I was his DP, I couldn't do anything else but and that was very difficult at times. And that's what drove me really to to seek principal's jobs and keep accepting, you know, keep chasing principal's jobs. Um, so that was one important decision. So a decision of loyalty? A decision to, lo to be loyal despite what I felt. Because the, the school... You know, you could, there's too many cases of, of strife in a staff destroying a school. Just heard of one today. And um, so, and you can't, you can't have that. It's, you've got to put your own personal view aside sometimes when you're not the boss. Yeah, we talk about it among some of my staff that there's times you just need to play the game. Mm you pick your challenges and your battles because some are more important than others. It's just impacting you. Yeah. Unless it's hurting you. you know. But if it's impacting your students, your other staff members, maybe you make noise. If the impact of you doing other is, is going to be worse mm. than what it currently is, then you don't do it. You need to think from all angles. Mm. That's how I saw it anyway. What's a, but what's a, what's another important important decision? I think I think something I'm glad that I, I'm always glad that I did when I moved into Wellington High, 
it was a, it was in, it wasn't in a good space when I got there. Be the best way. What year was it? That was 1995. There had been a headline in the paper just before I got there. I might not be a safe place across the Dominion Post. Um, and, you know, Wellington High wasn't in a great place when I went there in 1995. Roll dropped and physically the buildings were quite bad and, and some of the teachers have been there for a very long time. And I made a colossal mistake to say that I think we could do better when I saw the exam results. Um, but fortunately I read a book by that Noel Harrison, a history teacher at Wellington High or Wellington Technical College, had um, written to celebrate the 75th, no, the 50th anniversary. And um, it was called the, the school that Riley built. But what it did, it, it was a history of the school, and it, and it clearly showed that Wellington High was a school that was started in 1886 as an alternative to the two existing secondary schools at the moment, the, girl, the girls' high school and the boys' college. And it was to provide an opportunity for the children of the colonies to prepare for their future in the colony. So and at, at the time, that translated nicely into we're preparing kids for the future. We'll accept anybody that comes in here and we'll prepare them for the future. We will give them a pathway. So it gave us a nice, it gave me the opportunity to build on the culture that existed in the school or say that I was building on the culture that existed. To build the culture, rebuild the culture, if you like, that had possibly been lost. And um, and so I never, in that sense, I wasn't trying to change it or say that Wellington High wasn't a great place and had always been doing the right thing. So it was playing to our strengths, really, that we were, yeah, sure, we were different. We were non-uniform. We weren't doing conventional things necessarily in a conventional way but we were preparing kids for their future, not our past. Um, and I think we did it quite successfully. There's a lot of things that really challenge the status quo, you know, late starts and mm -hmm. people make noise about rewarding perfect attendance with money. I forgot about that. <laughs> well, Do you, was there much struggle? And trying to implement those things, pushback from the community. Yeah, there was pushback. Yeah, but but what, one of the questions I always ask myself, often ask myself, is whose interests are we serving? And if your answer is the kids, well, it becomes quite straightforward, doesn't it? Yeah. And for the for the sleep deprivation thing, there was at the turn of the century lots of research going into into. Um, adolescent sleep patterns and there was great activity at Massey University with their sleep research and Philip Aganda who was working there worked with us quite closely so that we didn't do it lightly. We knew the arguments to convince people that it was an okay thing to do but still I had the ministry ring up and say you can't do that and I said yes I can and Paul Holmes ring up and say you can't do that and all that sort of thing. But, but we did do it, and they're still doing it, and it didn't make any, nothing changed. Oh, actually, things did change because we looked at the year 12 results the next year, and they were better. I don't, I don't think we kept on it longitudinally, but, but they definitely improved in the first year. But um, there were two unintended consequences. One, people stopped moaning about the buses being full of Wellington High School kids because the workers and the students, the senior students, weren't fighting it. That was an unintended consequence. And what, what was the other one? Oh, yeah, the kids stopped skateboarding around because they didn't have so much time to, <laughs> to spend at school. For the listeners mm. um, who might not be aware, it was you gave seniors a, 
10.20 a.m. start, was it? Yes, uh, 10, 10.30, well, yeah. yeah. Tell me you've read the book Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker. Have you read that book? No. Oh, I'll get it for you. I read that book about two months ago. And, and I have to admit, when I was at Wellington High, I personally felt that it wouldn't make much difference because I didn't value sleep. Um, back then, I, you know, I used to play video games a lot, and now I, I work, I work, 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 and I going to bed at one thirty a.m. is not, you know, I'll do that three or four times a week, and it's not a problem. And I feel I function fine. And then I read this book, and he has a chapter where he says, if you think you're a night owl and you think you can survive on five hours or less sleep a night, I will have you have your mind changed by the end of this chapter. Blew my mind. Changed I changed my practice immediately. I get at least seven hours sleep a night now because of the research that this guy Matthew right. Walker has done and it, um, if teachers, even parents, could comprehend the data that's out there around sleep, particularly in teenagers, they would be um, thinking differently about how they do things and how yeah. they monitor their kids and their sleep patterns because it's just unbelievable. It is. And, and it reach, it's why kids sleep all weekend, you know, when they don't have to get up on Saturday morning, they sleep all weekend because they just do not get enough sleep. And yet that's still not enough to recharge no, them. It's not. So this extra hour and a half they had in bed was only a small step to, to giving them enough sleep. Probably we should have started at 12 o'clock and gone, to, done school till 6 o'clock and then we'd have been right, we'd have had really active little poodles. So as a principal, how, how do you, things like that, how do you communicate the core values of your school in a way that allows them to be embraced by staff, students, whānau, wider community? Because there is so many people that you're trying to please. Well, you have to do it by repeating things often enough. We didn't have PB4L when I was at, at Wellington High. Well, it was first introduced while I was there, but the Board of Trustees thought we didn't need it. Um, you keep, you, you, you have to have your messages that are relevant to the kids, to the staff and to the, to the parents. And they're all the same, but they have to have a little slightly different uh, way of, of saying them. You've got to keep them going and you've got to be uh, regular all, all the time. Um, and it, and it's not, it doesn't have to be, it has to be, it's got to be how you act and what you do has got to show what your values are. It's no good just saying something and doing something else. Does that make sense? I haven't thought about this for a while. Um, and that's very easy to do. Yeah. yeah. If you say we are respectful, well, you treat people with respect. You, you say hello to them. You say goodbye to them. You, you smile at them. You don't treat them as if they don't exist, especially kids. You stop and talk. You... Um, and the same with the staff. I don't know. I think reflecting on my time at high, the biggest strength I think of that school was the staff. A very, oh, very, very strong staff. staff. Someone said to us, one of the teachers who left about the same time as I did, visited the other day. And she said, um, and I'd never thought about it. She said, "What you did, you bought, a, you you built a community of people, who." And she was talking about the staff, who actually enjoyed working together, even though they were very different and believed lots of things. They enjoyed their time at school in the community of the school, which is why they still pop in to say hello to you. Mm. It's, it's not very often fazitas make it to morning tea, but. No. We spent a lot of time in that staff room because yeah. the, the staff were so good. Yeah, and our goal, well, my goal and DP's goal also, because that's what I want to do, was um, when we had morning briefings, everyone left with a smile. So you're actually interested in coming back. And the other, other thing is what I tried to do was make a to rationalise all the meetings that you have. 
because it's an awful drain on teachers out of their teaching time on things that are seen as essential and aren't necessarily essential. Department meetings, staff meetings, professional development meetings, report meetings, all those meetings. You know, the move to bring the reports being reported on during the day with the teacher, with the parents coming in. We were early adopters of that movement. And I'm just talking to someone the other day who was proudly introducing that into their school. Well, hey, we were doing that 12 years ago. We were an innovative school before innovative schools were a thing. But we just went about it quietly. Like we bought your own, bring your own devices. We trialled that with the year... Um, nines, we had our pilot class, which everyone wanted to belong to. The following year, all the year nines had it. And sure, there were some kids who who couldn't afford it, but we, I sought money and found money so that they could have their own device. And what happens next year, Some two years later, some school in Auckland hit the headlines in the Herald because they bought in their own devices. Anyway. Well, I, that's one, that's, you asked about um, Oh, what was it? Regrets. Some sometime when we were talking. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm going to ask you that at the end too. Oh, I, I won't. I won't talk to it. I won't say anything. I, 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 you better edit this bit out. I'll jump the gun. But that, you know, that that's role modelling. You know, you, we we talked about those core values, and you said, you know, you do what you talk about. But that doesn't mean what I like is that it's not, well, we're doing BYOD and all this and you promote it to the, we just, just get it done. No. Just give late starts, you get it done. I remember we tried trial to boys class, just get it done. There's no need to make fanfare about it and proclaim that you're an innovative school. We had, I think, I think the newsletter that we read um, was informative about what and why we're doing it. And we didn't do anything that wasn't um, understood, if you like, before with the parents. And we worried about the parents, about Wellington or New Zealand. And um, and they all understood why, why and what we were doing things. And I think that's the important thing. Mm. One parent said, I'm going to miss your newsletters. The next person will do my newsletters. I miss your Christmas letters. Yeah, it was a it was a brainwave. How like, many years did you do that for? Eighteen lots of those letters I wrote. Eighteen years. Um, and a letter for every single member of staff yeah. every Christmas. And you know why I did that? Why? Because my first year was so bloody miserable. Um, they hated me because. I didn't think they were great. They were the staff was complacent, and I, I'm a social science teacher. I went into the social science resource room. The state of the resources were terrible. The work that they were giving to the so at the end of the year and and at the end of the year I thought, well, how am I going to what am I going to do? Because I can't just send everybody off for the year. I might not come back. <laughs> <laughs> so I I thought, I just sat down one night and I thought, well, I can think of something positive for everybody. So I just got my one, I went out the next day and bought an A4 pad, and not A4, what is it? Little pad anyway, little A5 or something. And um, wrote everybody a note and put it in their pigeonhole. And the response was amazing. Even the people that I really struggled to find something good to say about them, and I know struggled saying good morning to me, um, was pleased. So the next year I couldn't not do it, mm. and it became just the thing that I did. It was a good thing. And yeah, I thought it was a good thing. And people people don't say nice things to people enough. No, people don't. are not kind enough. We get trapped in a little world. Me, 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 and forget that we're only a very small part, especially in a community like a school. It's important that we have those relationships and can see 
some personality in our letters. And I think by you writing those letters, it just showed that you cared, showed that you were human as well. And they were the highlight of... Yeah, people used to run and come early to get them. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about those fruitcakes you used to build in there. What do, what do you think, we're getting near the end now, what do you think are the biggest challenges teachers in education face today? And you, like, how can we, there seems to be a lot of teachers leaving. Do us be positive. There is so much negativity, it's, it seems to me, sitting on the sideline, that you never hear the unions or the teachers saying anything good about teaching. I know it's been a bargaining year, and so, of course, there's been lots of bad, you know, it's terrible and only money will fix it. Um, but, you know, it's a dream job. I don't understand why people who go to teachers' college and then come out to go to teaching then spend their time knocking the job. Um, I love the 13 weeks holidays. You know, it's it's not you're not working unless you're a principal, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. I agree. Yeah, you know, thirteen weeks. Gee, get, get, that's worth mint. You know, time for, if you want to do work. Yeah, sure, you've got time to do some flexi work, but you've also got time to play with your kids for thirteen weeks if you don't have if you're a, not normal, but if you're a you know an ordinary employee, you're lucky if you get six. So, but also it's the, it's the joy that teaching can give you that actually you don't hear about. You hear about the hard work, the paperwork, the filling out forms, writing reports, or report evenings, but actually they're only a small portion of the job. And I, that's what I think. I think teachers are stopped stop being negative about their great job and start sharing some of the good things about the job. And we were talking a little bit before the podcast, and that's part of the reason why I started these episodes was to share positive <laughs> stories that people are doing. And, you, and I think you're right. There's lots of negativity. And, um, I have a colleague who I just released an episode of his today, and he talks about You've, you've got to be happy, you've got to have fun, you've got to laugh in your job because that's going to keep you positive. The kids are going to see that you're happy and they're going to be more inclined to learn well and have positive relationships with you. I don't know if you remember, but I used to say, if you're not having fun, you're in the wrong school. Yeah. Before we get to the last question, is there anything I might have missed that you want to mention or is there anything you want to ask me? No. I don't think so. I tell you what, it's been nice to be on the other end for once, yeah. asking you the questions. So reflecting on your journey, your educational journey, biggest regret, biggest one, and how do you want to be remembered? My biggest one was getting appointed to Wellington High School. I know why I was appointed. I don't know if I've told you. We had a uh, interview. We had, we'd had a... a a wine and cheese with the board and staff the night before. Then we had interviews. There was four or five of us, I can't remember. I didn't know any of the others. I'd never seen Wellington High School. The buildings shocked me when I saw them. I thought, my God, I'm the principal of this. I thought it was great. But um, it was it was a, uh, you know, you you prepare for, for interviews and I had all my research and all my, I'd done a M Ed admin and all those other things to prepare. And um, I did that out of desperation because I thought there's only one way to beat the chaps and that's be higher qualified than, than them. Um, but one of the questions that the kids asked, the, the, the head boy and girl were there, or the staff reps, they didn't have head boy and girl. Um, there's a girl come to school and she's just got her undies and a big singlet on with her big armpits. What would you do? I said, well, I'd go and get one of those manky old blazers in the, out of the woman's changing room, out of the woman's toilets and, and there, and I said, I'd 
tell her to put it on and not do handstands. <laughs> Get back to class. And um, it's funny because years later I met I met another chap who said that he had been interviewed, and he said, "Well, that's the problem with the school; it needs a uniform." Anyway, um, what was the question? Biggest regret. One regret, and how did that was a win. My win was getting yeah. I consider that, you know, the greatest win of my life, really, yeah. apart from the boys' softball. Um, the biggest regret. I think was not being more public about the great things we were doing. You know, um, the sleep thing, the BYO, Tukatahi, you know, we talk, people are still start talk, talking about starting to have integrated curriculums and getting kids working together. And, and that was, that Tukatahi, I, I don't know whether they're still doing it or whether it's the same, but those four teachers, for those year groups were collaborating before collaborating was was the trend that it is yeah. now, if you like. And also getting Guy Powell to come to school and with his building powerful learners. I think that was a life changing thing for some for some of the staff. Certainly it was, you know, great to see people like Jane Smiler and the work she did with building powerful learners and how that transferred into the Kahui Ako thing. No, those were those were good things. Mm. Yeah, and I, I I recall being there and, and knowing that if you were in education, you knew the good things that mm. we were doing there, but mm. the public perception of Wellington High School was terrible. It was. Because all they saw were the kids in non-uniform and were yeah. in the centre of the city and... The best thing that ever happened was one day some tooty woman rang me up and said, your children are smoking dope down behind the the um, shops in Newtown. I said, oh, dude, how do you know they're my children? Because they're in uniform. <laughs> in your uniform. She'd got the wrong number. She met the boys' school. Um, thing that I thought was a real win was we did a damn good job at international marketing. Yeah. You know, we broke into that South American yeah. market when everyone said, ah, you won't get any Brazilians here. We had 19 the year after I went there first. That was far too many and a big mistake, but it would disprove the whole thing. And to be, we're the only school that's ever won the New Zealand Expo Award. And that's a bit of a plus. Should have yelled about that more. But yeah, I the internationals up. were. Yeah. I mean, one they, year, one year, I think I had a budget of twenty six thousand dollars. That's unheard of, and that was all because yeah. they contributed. Nineteen, probably that was the year we had nineteen Chinese. That also was a mistake, but I had a philosophy of making hay while the sun shone. Shine, shine, shine. Um, yeah, and I think they brought a richness and a diversity to the school that that we wouldn't have had otherwise. And mostly they were good kids. They were a few challenging kids. But that's what I liked. Wellington High was full of challenging kids, kids with character, corker kids. I don't remember that saying. My the first time my wife came into into the school was down in the in the old gym, and I can't remember who the kid was because she would remember her too. She came running around the corner, slammed me into the wall with her shoulder, and said that was for period one and ran off. And my wife was like, what "The hell is that about?" And that's just, that's what life at Wellington yeah. High School was about. The kids, you gave it to the kids and the kids gave it back. And that was an amazing relationship to have with with yeah. kids. And that's what it was all about. A sports council in my office once. And this kid poked her head around the door, saw I was busy, slammed the door and said, I wanted to see you. Well, she screeched as she... That was very funny. It's lucky she didn't have a gun. Look, I, I know it's getting late, and, and I really appreciate you taking the time out to chat. And I, when I started this podcast, and I think I was maybe 10 episodes in, and I thought, my 50th, I'm going to get Brew Kelly on the podcast. And, and my battery's going flat, so I reckon I can get this out. And 
I'm glad I, I got you on because my time at, at Wellington High School is, is the highlight of my teaching career. And you, you were, I talk about you a lot in a lot of the workshops I run and the presentations I give as, as someone who was an exceptional leader. And you gave me opportunities that I think other leaders wouldn't have given me. And you really set me on a path of success in education. And I'm very, very thankful that I started my career at Wellington High School and the opportunities you gave me. I didn't know where the place was. I had to take a map with me. I don't think we had Google Maps back then, yeah. but, uh, you know, into this big concrete jungle up Taranaki Street. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, it means a lot um, for me to have started my career there and be surrounded by all these um, amazing teachers. And, and I've got you to thank for that. So I appreciate you taking the time for this 50th episode. Well, Carl, you're pretty stunning yourself, really. I remember at the end of your interview, good old saying to me, what are we waiting for? No, I do miss it. I do miss it. It was a great school. And I end up back there one day. Who knows? Thanks. Thank you.